listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I am so happy to be sharing the conversation I'm about to share with you between me and Bart Ehrman, one of America's great scholars and in my mind, one of America's great human beings. I'm just, I'm so looking forward to sharing this conversation with you, mainly because in the midst of all this coronavirus stuff, I know a lot of Christians who are struggling with their fears about hell. I know a lot of deconverted Christians who, even though they no longer sort of consciously believe in heaven and hell, they're still haunted by the fear of it. He he just wrote a book called Heaven and Hell, A History of the Afterlife. And as he talks about what he learned about where these ideas came from and why they persist in our society, uh, I think he's, I, th- I think he, it, it could change some things for you. Uh, it definitely changed some things for me. And I'm not a guy who's, who's ever been overwrought with fear of that stuff, even when I was in the Christian thing. That wasn't what got me in. It wasn't a big deal when I came out. But boy, is it a big deal for a lot of us. And especially right now, a lot of people are wrestling with, with their fear of, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm damned? And uh, I think you're just going to love this conversation. Um, before we get to it, I, I hope you had a good Mother's Day. And this will be my sort of segue into the conversation because for, for our Mother's Day, we, we did one of those Zoom calls had everybody in the family on the phone saying wonderful things about my mother. And I, I know Mother's Day is a fraught holiday for a lot of people. And, and it's hard. And I hope you got through it if it's hard for you. Um, for us, it's, it's, not, it's not hard. My, my mother's this lovely person. And, and it's funny, the poem I picked for her, maybe it was because I had just spoken with Bart um, about hell. But it was this kind of hell-oriented poem uh, that sort of celebrates, even if you're not a person of faith, um, that, that sometimes you look at your mother and, and her faith and you think, you know what, that's, that's, it's a beautiful thing in her. I'll read it to you. It's, it's an old poem by Rudyard Kipling called Mother of Mine. If I were hanged on the highest hill, mother of mine, oh mother of mine, I know whose love would follow me still, mother of mine, oh mother of mine. If I were drowned in the deepest sea, mother of mine, oh mother of mine, I know whose tears would come down to me, mother of mine, oh mother of mine. If I were damned of body and soul, I know whose prayers would make me whole, mother of mine, oh mother of mine. It's funny, I read that to my mom and I said, I'm reading this to you because, you know, I'm the most likely of your children to be damned to hell. And my sister said, oh, wait a second, Bart. She said, I was, a, I was a non-believer long before you. I think I've got a big head start. Um, and we laughed. And we could laugh because my mother is the kind of believer who's not at all worried about God sending anybody to hell. And uh, yeah, we had a lovely time and joking about the fear of hell. But it is no joke to a lot of people. And uh, that's, why I, I, that's why I'm glad there are people like Bart Ehrman in the world making uh, making the truth really interesting. So listen, with no further ado, because I've already given you quite a bit of ado, Bart Ehrman is a distinguished professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He is also the 
principle of the Bart Ehrman blog, which is one of the world's coolest projects. Um, he posts about five times a week, kind of really interesting stuff if you're into religious history and you, you want to know kind of the dirt on on all these kind of big ideas and uh, all the money that he raises on this thing because there's a little paywall that you get to to get in there. Although, he, although right now he's got like a free two months to get people started during the virus thing. But he raises hundreds of thousands of dollars through this thing and uh, and it all goes to charity. So uh, yeah, if you do nothing else, go to check out the Bart Ehrman blog. But before you do that, check out me and Bart Ehrman chopping it up on Humanize Me. Here we go. First thing, you, you just asked me how old I was. Yep. And and I'm 57 and you're 64. Right. Um, but more importantly, what I want to know is, what's your real name? Bart. Yeah. So my parents uh, wanted uh, my brother and me to have uh, nicknames rather than having names that would be given nicknames. And so uh, my, my brother has a uh, more unusual name. His name is Rad, R-A-D-D, which must be short for Radcliffe. <laughs> and uh, I'm Bart, short for whatever, Bartholomew or Barton. What, what are you? Well, I, you say, what's funny is I'm Bart too, but for huh. a very different reason. And, and actually, this is, you might, you're one of the few people that would get this story. So I, I did not know exactly why I was named Bart as a boy, except that I thought that maybe my parents just wanted to torture me so that they yes. would give me a name that rhymed with fart so that I yes, would just be, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's ironic that your parents like, were like, we'll give him a name so that he won't get nicknames. Yeah. Right. <laughs> what were they yeah. thinking? Yeah. They, they, they were thinking, yeah, the fart is a middle name, right? Bart the fart. <laughs> my, my wife's name is Marty. So like it's, it's, it's a bonding thing with us. We both grew up with it. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. But when I, when I was in college, I went to um, Brown and, and while I was there, um, James Barr yep. came to campus as a visit, as a visiting professor. Uh -huh. um, and I, I was in this Jewish studies class with this professor named uh, Jacob Neusner, who was oh, kind yes, of a, a real of character on campus. Yes, we all know Jacob Neusner. Yep. Did you know him? Yeah, well, I didn't know him well. I've met him, but I mean, he's very famous. I was going to say famous. He's rather infamous, actually. Infamous, yes. Yeah. And and on, in my, I, I had him in class and he hated every student in my class <laughs> except me. Really? Except me. I was, he loved me. He, ah. he, 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 would, he would throw the whole class out in the middle of the class, go, you're all idiots, go out. I'll give you A's, but I don't want to look at you. And we would be walking out and he would pull me back and he would go like, but not you, Bart. I didn't mean you. I like you. Ah. Um, <laughs> so, so, so Newsner tells me to take this class with James Barr. Uh. And my buddy and I sign up for this class and we're the, we're, there are only three students in the whole class. And, uh, huh. and so, you know, you're with this world-class scholar. And yeah, once, yeah. once a week we got together for four hours. And I, at the time I was this hardcore evangelical Christian. I got converted uh, in, my, in my high school days and I was part of the youth group and I got all into it. I was doing urban mission stuff. So I'm in this class and Barr systematically starts taking apart the Bible for me. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'm dying. <laughs> 
Right. You right. Know, and, 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 and I'm, I'm thinking I'm in, I'm in real trouble. And at one point my buddy, Jerry and I go to his class after class and we say, Hey, you know, this isn't academic for us. Like we're believers. Um, and we're, you, this is, re, you know, you're really messing with us. And I thought like, I was like, do you believe in God? And of course he wouldn't answer that question. He wasn't giving me any personal information. He was uh-huh. a very taciturn guy, but he threw me a bone right at the end. He said, listen, you have to do a final paper. He said, I would suggest you do your final paper on Carl Barth. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and so That was all I needed. I went to the library. I got every book of Karl Barth. I went down. I spent the next three weeks just immersing myself in Karl Barth's view of scripture. You know, and I came out of it and I was like, oh, because Barth's thing was like, the Bible isn't the word of God. It bears witness to the word of God. Yes, indeed. Um, God, God speaks, God speaks through it. But it, it, like, it doesn't matter if it's inerrant. It doesn't matter if it's full of errors. It doesn't matter. Like, what's what matters is that God has chosen to use it, and that God will speak to you through it. Yeah. And uh, when I got done that, I was like, Oh my gosh! I, I remember I called my dad on the phone. <laughs> my dad's this kind of hard, big time Christian evangelist. I know. I met your dad. Did you? Yeah. He's a sweet man, isn't yeah, he? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. So I call him up and I say, Dad, I, I think I'm going to be able to stay a Christian. You know, because because of, of the writings of Karl Barth, I think I think I'm going to be able to. <laughs> I, I, I've made sense of it. Uh-huh. And my dad said, "You know, that's why I named you after him." No, was when I was in seminary, ah. I had the same experience, and Karl Barth saved my faith. And I, I I swore to myself if I ever had a son, I would I would name him after Karl Barth. And he said, "I dropped the H off here so that people wouldn't pronounce it wrong." Yes. Oh. How about that? Oh my God. Isn't that weird? That's very weird because, you know, I mean, you know that uh, James Barr himself was an evangelical. Yeah. Yeah. I figured that out after the fact. You didn't, you didn't see his book on fundamentalism at the time. (laughs) Well, no, I I did read his book on fundamentalism, but like he was sort of making, I felt like he was sort of making fun of fundamentalists. Yes, Yes, he was. Yeah, yeah. He he wasn't he wasn't an evangelical fundamentalist. He no. was an evangelical progressive. Yeah, but then he uh, yeah no he he yeah he had quite a shift. Uh, I think at some point, at least that's what I've heard. I didn't really, but I uh, I knew that he he came out of an evangelical tradition, and then, but you know, when I was an evangelical, uh, Karl Barth was strictly verboten. We wanted nothing to do with him. <laughs> Right. Now, of course, I mean, he's, he was one of the great thinkers of the 20th century, but uh, as a fundamentalist, I didn't want anything to do with him. <laughs> well, you know, and the funny thing is, looking back, I mean, back at the time, I was like, you know, I was so thrilled. I was like, Karl Barth saved my life. Yeah. You know, okay, yeah. I almost lost my faith in college. And now, yeah, you know, yeah. then, then I spent 30 years as an evangelical minister and missionary and all this stuff. And now I look back and I go like, man, if I could have just stayed away from Carl Barth, I would have saved so much time. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's funny. I've so, never heard anybody named after Carl Barth. Although, you know, when one is in seminary and one's name is Bart, you're never quite sure whom they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I heard Bart say. <laughs> I, no, I, I, it, was, it was confusing me then. But then when, when I, you know, when I found out, it was so interesting because I, I thought, 
I wonder how many people Carl Bart enabled to stay in the game, to stay in the Christian game. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, when I was when I was in seminary, I was at Princeton Theological Seminary, and Bart was basically the fourth member of the Trinity there. And a lot of the uh, students came in with very conservative evangelical views, and uh, they went out still committed Christians, but with a more—and this is back, you know, it was in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, and neo-Orthodoxy was still a thing, and a lot of them adopted that kind of view. And it absolutely was their salvation. And I'd say most of them still have a pretty similar view now. What do you, I'm, I'm curious, like atheist, agnostic, humanist, like what do you call yourself these days? Uh, I call myself all of the above, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I don't think that, I, I think that they're talking about different things. Um, and so uh, sort of to run through the list, uh, my, my, so what I, what I used to think was that when, when I was a Christian, when I was a very liberal Christian, after I'd moved away from evangelical Christianity, uh, I had the view that most people have, which is that uh, agnosticism and atheism were two degrees of the same thing, uh, that an atheist says there is no God. And the agnostic says, I don't know. And so an agnostic is kind of en route to, uh, to atheism. And of course, there still are a lot, of, a lot of agnostics and atheists who still see it that way. And so a lot, a lot of the agnostics I know uh, would say that atheists are simply arrogant agnostics. Uh, I mean, they don't know either, <laughs> but, they, but they claim to know. And so, well, you know, well, they don't know. And so they might as well just admit it. And the atheists have the other view that the agnostics are just wimpy atheists. Uh, they, they don't really think this, but they're too afraid to come out and say it. And so, so they see them, often they see themselves as two degrees of the same thing. But I, I think they're actually talking about different things. Uh, the word agnostic literally means don't know from the Greek. Uh, and so an agnostic uh, ha- doesn't know whether there's a God or not. Atheism, I think, doesn't involve knowledge. Uh, it doesn't involve knowledge. It involves belief. An atheist is one who doesn't believe that there is a God. Uh, and so in terms of my, uh, my epistemology, what I know, I, I don't know if there's a divine being in the world. I mean, how, how the hell would I know? <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, but, but in terms of what yeah, I would say, believe, yeah, he could be hiding on the other side of Venus, you know, it is twiddling possible. his thumbs. He, he might be that teapot. Yeah. I don't know, circling. The, I, know, I don't know. Uh, but, I, you know, I don't believe so. Uh, and so I, I just think that to preserve a sense of humility, I admit that epistemologically I'm not there, and, and no one else is either, but I certainly don't believe it. But then those are both negative terms. And so what do I believe in? Well, I'm a humanist. Uh, I believe uh, I believe in the human spirit. I believe in uh, uh, human well-being. I believe in human goals in life. I believe in promoting the human. And so uh, I consider myself all three. Yeah. So, so I, I know, I know what you are now, but like, what kind of Christian were you um, in the sense of like, you know, like, like I want to talk about heaven and hell because you've got this great book about heaven and hell. And I'm like, when you were a Christian, were heaven and hell a big deal to you? Were you that kind of Christian? Uh, well, the thing is, I was a different kind of Christian at different periods in my life. Um, and so I was, I was raised Christian. I was raised in the Episcopal church, but, uh, and I was a, I was a religious kid. I went to church regularly and I was an altar boy and all that. Um, but then I decided when I was 15 to become a Christian, 
<laughs> as as evangelicals tell you to do, even though you, you know, and so I'm not quite sure what I, I certainly wasn't a Buddhist before. I'm not sure what I was, but they thought I wasn't a Christian. So when I became a Christian, which means when I, you know, accepted uh, Christ as my Lord and Savior and, and that, um, and had this, this kind of born again experience, then, um, Heaven and hell became uh, a much more important thing to me. I'd always been raised with the idea of heaven and hell, and I believed in heaven and hell, and it's probably part of, probably maybe a large part of why I wanted to become a Christian as a 15 year old. Uh, And at that point, I became uh, a very serious uh, evangelical and went off to, you know, a fundamentalist Bible. Uh, school. So I, I didn't go to an Ivy League college. I, I went to Moody Bible Institute. Uh, and I was, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I actually, uh, joke, you, you, that's the whole nine yards, man. That is the whole nine yards. Oh, it is. It is. So the nine yards. And, um, I, uh, I was, a I was a fundamentalist and, and we were proud of the term fundamentalist because it meant that we subscribe to the fundamentals and, uh, liberal Christians, gave up on the fundamentals. And so they weren't, you know, if they were Christian at all, it was just kind of more kind of in name than in reality. Um, But then, you know, over time, uh, as I also went through seminary and started changing my views of things, I, uh, I became more of a liberal Christian and was a liberal Christian for for uh, long, for many years, where I didn't believe that the Bible was inerrant, and I had doubts about a lot of the doctrines, including um, the doctrines of hell, the doctrine of hell. Um, I think I continued to believe in some kind of heaven, uh, and I really didn't give all that up until I don't know twenty twenty five years ago when I when I left the church altogether. So, like I like I, I, I'm familiar with that drift, you know. Yes, I think. Uh, you know, I, 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 I went through that. The weird thing for me though is, is that my giving up on heaven and hell happened like six minutes after I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. What? Oh yeah. It was ne- It was never, what attracted me to Christianity was this wonderful youth group, like felt like a club for nice people that wanted to help others. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted to identify with that. I wanted to be part of that. Yeah. But you know, the, the attraction was to be part of an army that was going to transform the, the, the world into the kingdom of God and that we were going to feed the poor and, 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 and care for the lonely and the sad. For me, heaven and hell were never the, the, like, ironically, they weren't the attraction to Christianity. They were the price of admission. Interesting. Like I kind of had, yeah, you know, you kind of had to believe in that stuff to get in. Yes. Yes. Right. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, the, 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 the group thing was very important for me too. I think that's what actually attracted me to that, that kind of Christianity because it's very different from the Episcopal church I'd been raised in. Uh, And, you know, it was this youth group that it was a campus life youth for Christ group that I was starting to attend in high school. And that was very, very attractive to me. Um, but along with it came for me, um, the, the ideas, you know, that, um, both have, there's heaven and hell. There's the Bible is the inspired word of God. There's, uh, the Trinity. And, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there are doctrines that went along with it, uh, for me. And I suppose maybe going to Moody Bible Institute is, it did make a big difference that way because it, you know, the whole, a major point there is evangelism and, um, 
evangelism is nice if you're just trying to, I suppose, you know, people would have thought it was nice if you're trying to help people out. But for us, it was essential because uh, if somebody didn't believe, they were going to hell. <laughs> and so uh, that, that drove, it drove the evangelistic uh, purpose. And, you know, and that really, I mean, it's funny because looking back, I didn't get into the heaven and hell stuff very much. That that wasn't what motivated me. I think my dad was kind of an influencer. He had this great line that he used to preach. He said, you know, I believe in heaven and I believe in hell, he would say. But if there was no heaven and if there was no hell, I would still follow Jesus because it's the best way of life. Yeah. Well, and okay. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. It's funny. My wife always says like that the only thing that scared her more than hell was the idea of a heaven in which you would live forever singing the praises of God. She was <laughs> like, that sounds so, sounds so horrible. Um, yeah, I know. But, yeah. but I guess what's interesting is, is that it didn't compel me, but when I think about like, why were our groups so alive and energized and purposeful? Uh-huh. And I go like, oh, we we were. It was about saving people's souls. It was about it was about literally saving them from eternal suffering. Yeah, but that that so heaven and hell. What sounds like it was important. I mean, because uh, I mean, if if the point if the point of the Christian faith is to you know help the poor and to uh, take care of those in need, which I absolutely believe. I mean, I uh, I I'm you know, kind of like what your father was saying. I mean, I, I still try to follow what I understand to be the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the New Testament, uh, without any of the, without any of the, of the doctrine. Uh, but if that's the case, then, you know, saving their souls isn't really the issue so much as helping them now. I was just going to say one of the problems with, with evangelists who are, uh, you know, all concerned about the afterlife is that in many, not all instances, but in many instances, it means that they think everything's going to be resolved in the by and by. And since everything's going to be resolved then, uh, it's not going to be resolved now. And so there's no real real need to help people now because, you know, they'll be better off if they die. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so, you know, you have all these Christians who just don't, I mean, they really don't give a damn. And you just wonder, really? <laughs> but, uh because, you know, for them, it's about saving the souls for the afterlife. It's not about helping people in the world now, which I think runs completely contrary to the teaching of Jesus. But uh, it is definitely a form of evangelical Christianity still today. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and speaking of Jesus, I mean, it, it feels like one of the main messages of your most recent book is that, uh, you know, is that heaven and hell like that 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 they're not really in the old testament at all and that jesus and even the earliest christians didn't believe in them yeah am i am i getting that right absolutely right i mean it's uh it's the most surprising thing about about this book of mine um that i try to i mean it's not hard to show actually i mean that there is no heaven and hell in the old testament there the problem is people think there is because when they read their english translations english translators will sometimes translate a particular hebrew word as hell and so it sure sounds like hell's in there but the word they're translating, Sheol, absolutely is not a place that people go to get tortured forever. Uh, and so it's not, and they didn't even believe that your soul could exist outside of your body, the ancient Hebrews. And so it's not in the Old Testament. And the more surprising thing is that it's not what Jesus preached. 
And again, people don't realize this because they read these Bible translations that simply mistranslate the words that he uses. Uh, and it's not a- actually that hard to show. <laughs> and so, so my, but people don't realize this. And so that's really a major point of my book is that these views that people have that, that do a lot of, they, they can do some good, but they do a lot of harm, especially the psychological damage that's inflicted on people believing in hell. Uh, it's pointless really, because it's not actually w- what the original Christian message was. Yeah. It's funny. I was, I, as Richard Dawkins, uh, I read, I read a quote of his where he said, I can't think of many people who deserve to go to hell, but people who teach its existence to children are the prime candidates. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. My, you know, again, like I, I'm, I was a missionary. I was an interested in missionary for years. So the single Bible passage that I quoted and read and lived by the most was Matthew 25. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. Sh- the sheep and the goats. And it feels to me like Jesus said, that he was going to say to the one, come and be with me. And to the others, he was going to cast into the outer darkness where there will be eternal suffering. I mean, didn't he say that? Uh, he actually doesn't say they'll be cast into the darkness where there'll be eternal suffering. What he says is that they'll be destroyed. Um, and so the, um, they, uh, they, there's nothing about torture there. Uh, the sheep come into the eternal kingdom and they enter, uh, they ent- enter into life eternal life. The uh, goats go off to the fire and uh, they experience eternal punishment. But our problem is that people read that and they think, well, eternal punishment means they're being tortured forever. But in fact, what what Jesus is doing is what he's doing everywhere in the Gospels is he's talking about annihilation. Uh, Jesus frequently talks about people being destroyed if they don't get into the kingdom. And so these people go off into the fire. Well, what? Well, so what's that about? Well, what happens when somebody enters into? What happens when somebody's burned? They die. <laughs> people who are burned at the stake don't scream for millions of years. You know, they die. They're dead. And so the way to know that that's what's going on in the sheep and the goats is eternal life is is paralleled with eternal punishment. So what's the opposite of life? Is it torture? No, the opposite of life is death. And so the parallel shows you that he's talking about people dying. And this is completely consistent with everything else he says throughout the Gospels, that you can either enter into life or you enter into death. Uh, And uh, life means you live forever and death means you're dead forever. (laughs) And that's why it's an eternal punishment, because it's never going to be reversed. You're dead and it's forever. Uh, and so that's so Jesus is not teaching eternal torment in that passage or anywhere else. He's teaching that people who don't make it into the kingdom are going to be destroyed. And, and, and even the eternal life is not eternal life somewhere else. It's eternal life in your in your body on this earth. Yeah, that's the other thing people don't get. Because oh, so so the background of this is people today. You know, the majority of people today in our country continue to believe in a literal heaven and hell. So something like uh, seven out of 10 people believe in a, uh, uh, a literal heaven and six out of 10 believe still in a literal hell. And by that, they mean that you die, your body dies and your soul goes to one place or the other, uh, which is the traditional Christian belief. But it's not the ancient Jewish belief. It's not, it's not what people thought in the Old Testament times. It's not what Jesus thought. Ancient Jews 
didn't think that the soul existed apart from the body. Um, in ancient, uh, in ancient Hebrew thought, what we would call the soul is the life force that empowers your body to live. Uh, and in the Old Testament, it's the breath. When, when God makes Adam, he, uh, takes the dirt and he makes this body out of dirt and then he breathes life into it. And Adam is alive as long as he breathes. When he stops breathing, he's no longer alive. Well, what happens to his breath? The breath doesn't go anywhere. It just stops. Uh, and that's, that's what they understood, uh, the soul to be. It's, it's, it doesn't exist apart from the body. The people who thought that the soul, there was a soul that existed apart from the body were the Greeks. Uh, you find this in Plato, who argues that the soul lives forever. So when the body dies, the soul lives on. And so the Christian doctrine of going to heaven and hell is a combination of what Jesus taught about the coming kingdom of God for those who are on God's side and destruction for everyone else. It's a combination of that with Plato's idea that the soul lasts forever. And when you combine the two, then you have eternal life in your soul and eternal death in your soul, which never dies, which means eternal death is eternal torment. And so it's an amalgam of Jesus' teachings with Plato's teachings rather than something you find in the Bible. And, and who did the amalgamating? Was that Paul? <laughs> uh, well, Paul, Paul kind of got the ball rolling. And so Paul was like Jesus, a Jew. And like Jesus, Paul thought that what was going to happen when, when, when this world ended, uh, you know, when, when finally God decides there's been enough awful things happening in this earth, there's been enough pain and suffering and drought and epidemic and hurricanes and earthquakes and all that. God's had enough. He intervenes and destroys the current order and brings the world back to paradise. And that's what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. It's the new paradise here on earth, just like the first paradise, the Garden of Eden was here on earth. The new paradise will be here on earth and everybody will enter into it who's on God's side. Those who are... Um, are dead already, they're going to be brought back to life. God will breathe life back into them. And if they're on God's side, they'll enter in the kingdom. If they're not on God's side, then he will bring them back to life to realize how badly they blew it, and then he'll annihilate them. Paul thought that. <laughs> okay, okay, wait, 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 stop, stop. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to get, I just, <laughs> I just get this moment where all these people are coming back to life in order to, in order to get their final answer. Um, yeah. First of all, like, did, did none of these Jews ever see a decomposed body? They did. They knew all about that. And what's going to happen is God's going to do a miracle. He's going to bring the bodies back to life. And so they actually talk about what it's going to be like. And, and so did the early Christians, because the Christians bought into this and, and still have it, by the way. When the Christians, say, Christians who say the creed still confess that they believe in the resurrection of the dead. Well, that that is not your soul going to heaven. That's your body coming they, back. They to say life. the resurrection of the body. They literally say the words body. Yeah, it depends which creed you're saying. But Apostles that, creed. What that means is the yeah. body comes back. To, and so Christians had to deal with this. You know, what about the decomposing body? And 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 they came up with very and they had to deal with it at uh, at a very deep level. And so you have these Christian theologians who are saying things like, uh, "Look, what happens if you're a sailor?" And you you uh, you die at sea, and your body gets tossed into the ocean, and a fish eats your body. Your body then is when it's digested by the fish. Your your body becomes part of the fish's body, and then suppose a fisherman catches that fish 
and eats the fish, then part of your body that was in the fish becomes the fisherman's body. So at the resurrection, who gets those parts? (laughs) And so, so, yeah, they absolutely knew about all these problems and they worked it out theologically about how to explain, you know, how- And and, and, and the other thing is like, how old are you going to be? Well, that's right. How old are you going to be? And, you know, and, you know, if every part of your body comes back, um, you know, first of all, are you going to have all of your hair and fingernails? Like, that'll be awful. <laughs> You'll be very hairy and have very long fingernails. And what, you know, what if you like you had your arm amputated at some point? Do you get your arm back or not? And what if you what if you had uh, difficulties at birth? Maybe you had some uh, some uh, birth defects. I mean, you mean you're going to spend eternity like that? And so, yeah. So all of these questions, I mean, authors, well, most famously, um, uh, St. Augustine uh, dealt with these kinds of issues, but there were others uh, before him as well. Wow. And so, so Paul, so my point, <laughs> you know, do, do you get back to my point? Is Paul started out with that belief. It was a Jewish belief, very common at the time, that the bodies will be raised at the end. And that's, that's a signature of what happens at the end of time, body gets raised. Um, Paul came to believe that Jesus got raised. And Paul's first thought is not what people think today. Paul's first thought was the resurrection has started, meaning it is now the end of time. That's why Paul thought he was living at the end of the ages, because somebody has been raised and everybody else is going to follow suit now. So the resurrection has started. And so at the beginning of Paul's ministry, he told his converts that God was soon going to destroy the world and bring in the kingdom, and they needed to believe in Jesus to get into that kingdom. But with the passing of time, it didn't happen. And the years turned into decades. And at the end of his life, Paul's thinking, uh, you know, I might die before that happens. And then he wondered, well, if I die before it happens, you know, I've got this close relationship with Christ now. Does it mean I won't have a close relationship to Christ until the resurrection? And Paul thought, well, no, actually, if I have a close relationship with him now, I'm surely I will after I die. And Paul started thinking then that when he died, he would be in Christ's presence in heaven. And once he started thinking that, uh, this idea uh, was latched onto by his followers, Paul's followers in the churches he established, virtually all of whom were Gentiles, non-Jews. Non-Jews were raised with Plato's idea that the soul would live forever. And so Paul, thinking that he would be in heaven with Christ, uh, his churches latched onto that. They started to think, yes, we're right then. The soul is going to live on. But the thing is that since souls are immortal in Plato's teaching, that means that only the righteous souls will be with Christ. What about the others? Well, if we're being rewarded, they'll be punished. And since the soul lasts forever, that means they will be punished forever. And that's where you get the idea of hell. You know, it's funny. (laughs) I always hated Paul. (laughs) You know, even when I was a Christian, I always used to think, you know, gosh, you know, I like Jesus, but Paul. Yeah. Howard, I, do, do you know who, you know who Howard Thurman was, the, the great old black theologian? Yeah. Thurman said that when he was a kid, his grandmother was a a a a, a slave. She was a freed slave. She had been a slave up to the Civil War, and he said that when she was older, 
she would ask him to read the Bible to her and he would read the Bible. And he said he would read the epistles, but he said whenever he would get to a Pauline letter, she would say, nah, don't read me that. I don't want to hear from that guy. Yeah. Because uh, she said, whenever, whenever the slave preach, whenever the, the master's preachers would preach to the slaves, he would always quote Paul, slaves yeah. be obedient to your masters. And he was always telling us we would, we would be rewarded if we were, if we were good slaves. He said, I, I get, keep Paul away from me. Yeah. I, this heaven yeah. and hell stuff makes me think we really ought to keep Paul away from everybody. He's, he's the <laughs> problem here. Well, he didn't believe in Paul. Now, Paul himself didn't believe in eternal punishment. That's another point I make. He thought he thought like Jesus, you're going to get destroyed. And so but uh, yeah, there are a lot of people who don't like Paul because uh, they think that he he uh, uh, ruined the uh, the teaching of Jesus. Uh, there's a famous essay by uh, George Bernard Shaw, uh, which uh, which talks about this, about how Paul destroyed Christianity. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, but Paul, no, I mean, Paul was a very deep thinker. And one of the questions is, is whether his his religion, whether the religion he preached was actually the same religion that Jesus preached. Uh, it's a very interesting question. Uh, it's not doesn't have an obvious answer, actually. Well, and, and you know, one of the things I wonder here is, in, back, if, if we go back to Jesus, you know, the role of Satan, because I feel like when you get heaven and hell in very serious permanent categories, you also end up with a, a sort of a permanent role for, for Satan. Yeah. I mean, what I would say is that the heaven and hell thing took over the teaching of Satan that Jesus himself probably had and transformed it. Um, so I was saying earlier how God is going to destroy the forces of evil in the world and set up a good kingdom because all this pain and misery. This is a view that, uh, Jesus inherited. Uh, you don't, you don't find Satan in the old Testament. You, you find the word Satan a couple of times, uh, but where Satan appears in the old Testament, he's actually one of God's angels. Uh, like in the book of Job, he's, he's one of the angelic counselors to God. Um, the idea of a devil like a force of evil that is, at, that is against God and against his people, developed about 200 years before Jesus at the same time that the idea of a resurrection developed. And the idea became that the reason people are suffering is not because God's punishing them, but because there are evil forces in the world that are create, creating such havoc here. And the head of those evil forces was the devil. So the devil became the enemy of God, and the devil is in control of this world, and the devil has demons. And so this is why demons become popular at the time of Jesus. And there are these other principalities and powers that are in charge. And so you have these, uh, these wicked forces that God is going to destroy. Uh, and so this destruction is going to happen at the time of the resurrection. So the evil people will be destroyed, and so will all the So before that, in a sense, we were our own worst enemies, that, that God had laid down these commandments, this was a way to live, and if you lived God's way, you did well, and if you, if you were disobedient to God, you got punished. Um, but there was no, there was no enemy, you, you were your own enemy. That's that's the main that's the main uh, view of almost the entire Old Testament, page after page after page. It's all about you've sinned, God's going to punish you, or if you're suffering, it's because God is punishing you. What you need to do is return to God, and then things will be fine. And then eventually, you know, people like the book, the author of the Book of Job said, "Yeah, it doesn't work that way." And uh, and people who had this apocalyptic view that I'm describing said, "You know, we're doing what God 
told us to do, or at least we're trying to, and we're being we're being killed for that. So that that can't be right. And so that's when they develop this idea that it's happening because of these forces of evil. We, I mean, eternal life, whether it's heaven or hell. Do do you have a in your heart of hearts? Do you have a suspicion of like where that idea comes from? Uh, yeah. I mean, um, part of what I try and do in my book. So, so my book is called Heaven and Hell: A History of the Afterlife. And what I try to do is to trace the history of this idea. Where where does it actually come from? And um, what I show is that in the oldest forms of uh, our of of our culture, uh, it wasn't there. It, not just the Old Testament, but also in the ancient Near East, for example. Before I start, I actually start with the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, which is you know way before the Bible, which also doesn't have an idea that there is uh, eternal life or uh, you know or or eternal punishment per se. The the first time we start getting it in any kind of prominence is in the writing of ancient Greek philosophers, especially Plato. It preceded Plato, but Plato is the one who popularized it. And what's driving the idea is uh, pretty much what I've been saying in a different guise, that um, the world, to make sense, has to be in some way fair, but it's obviously not fair. Um, there's no there's no real justice here on Earth. You have people who are very good people who uh, try to help others and try to live good lives. And they are in pain and misery for most of their existence, and they die a miserable death. Well, that's okay. not right. All right. And then, and then yeah. you get these people who are schmucks, who are who are rich and powerful and tyrannical, and they and they you know and they they live horrible lives, but they're they're ha you know they've got everything they want, and they die and they get away with it. Well, that's not right either. And so Greeks like Plato developed this idea that there's justice after this life. Um, then uh, that crept into the Jewish tradition eventually, and you end up then with our view. So eternal life came from the idea that there has to be some kind of justice, uh, because otherwise like, the world doesn't make any sense otherwise. That's so, it so makes sense to me when I think about what happens to people when they stop believing in God. Because you know, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I coach, counsel, talk to hundreds of people every year who are struggling in the aftermath of their deconversions. Yeah. And one of the biggest things that crashes down upon them, it's not just the idea that they themselves won't live forever. Um, it's that there's no justice in the world. Yeah. Um, that there was a sense in which they were counting on God to make things right. And, and they'll sometimes say to me, so, so I mean, so Bart, how do things get right? Like explain to me how this all works out. And, and when I said them, you know, I, I suspect there is no justice in the world except that which we're able to make. Um, that justice is an emergent concept. Like, yeah, like that, that there, there is no fairness. It, it's, it's like that's worse than losing heaven is losing justice. Well, you know, it's not a, it's not a satisfying of an answer because people think there should be justice. But, you know, the, the, the reality is that much of 
the world is not what the, what we want it to be. Uh, and, you know, we, I think in a Christian culture, we're trained to think eschatologically, that there's always some kind of good outcome in the end, uh, which is why we like, you know, heartwarming movies and we like novels with good endings because that we're kind of constructed to think that way. But the reality is, um, you know, this universe is going to eventually succumb to entropy and there'll be no life form anywhere. Uh, there won't be even, there won't be planets anywhere. Eventually, uh, there won't be anything. Any there'll be particles floating around in vast quantities of space. And so, you know, it's not a comforting thought. But you know, you shouldn't believe otherwise just because it's more comforting. Um, you should you know, face up to reality and then and then figure out you know how to make the best of what we can in the time we have. And and what's interesting is is that when I think about all the suffering in the world. And, and and I don't want this to sound nihilistic or suicidal, but the idea of everything ending, um, it has a certain appeal, like just falling asleep and never waking up. Uh, there's, there's a certain poetic, you know, like sometimes you'll be at a funeral and they'll say, well, he, he's not suffering any longer. And I think... He, on some level, there's a lot of tension and a lot of struggle in this life. And not that I don't love it, but I can imagine having had enough of it. Yes. Well, it's like you were saying earlier about your wife thinking about you know, spending eternity, you know, many, many trillions of years doing nothing but contemplating and worshiping God and how uh, how awful actually that would be. I mean, uh, every, every fictional portrayal of heaven is of eternal life is is a, a nightmare. Well, and you know, people talk about you know they want to they you know a lot of people really want want heaven because they want to see their loved ones again, uh, which obviously makes a lot of sense. But you know, I think uh, during the self isolation during the last two months, people are starting to wonder. <laughs> I, spent, I spent two months here, uh, you know, with my spouse, and do I really want to spend two hundred trillion years? And that's just the beginning. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, yeah, it might be better just to pass off. <laughs> Have you ever heard of a TV show called The Black Mirror? Uh, no. It's a show about the future of technology. It's not, it's, it's a fictional show. So they take it like, what would happen if Facebook became something that you could read somebody's sort of number of social cachet just by looking at them? Yes. And, you know, technologically. And how would that affect our relationships? There's this one episode in season two where this woman and this, and her husband live in this beautiful, idyllic way. And he gets in a car accident and dies. And a friend of hers comes to him and says, look, there's a new computer program that you can sign up for where they'll take all of his emails and all of his video, all the video that was ever taken, every photograph, everything, download it into this algorithm, and they'll create a way in which you can email him. Uh -huh. And the emails that will come back to you will be exactly the emails he would have written. Yes, yes. And so this woman starts corresponding with her dead husband. And it's so per and then and then in, in one of the correspondences he says, Hey, there's an they've upgraded the program. We could talk on the phone. Ah. And so then then she's talking to this sim, you know, this sort of bot that that has her husband down to a T, his sense of humor, all their memories, everything. And it's it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it denies her. 
Like at first she thinks it's the answer to all her problems. You never lose somebody you love. But then it starts to dawn on her that because she knows it's not real and because he gets a a few little things off, you know, like it's not. and, And eventually she realizes that she's not able to grieve the loss of her husband. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, and so, it, you know, but the idea is that grief, you know, when you, when you and I say we're humanists, part of the human experience is, is grieving for someone who dies or, for, or knowing that we're also going to die and like living in the shadow of death. And so it's, it's interesting that it's interesting to the degree that these, these folks came up with heaven and hell partly because of their interest in eternity, because it just seems like seems like a, a bad bargain for a human being. Uh, it does. Although I think, you know, partly it does for us because we have such long lifespans uh, in comparison. I think if, uh, if oh. everybody you knew was dying when they were 30, uh, you might have a different perspective on it. Uh, and the wow. Other, yeah, yeah. But the, uh, I don't, uh, so I'm actually interested in artificial intelligence. And so I, I, I will check out that show, but I, but I, uh, I don't, don't know if you saw the good place. You know, I did, I saw the first season. Yeah. Oh no. You need to see the final season, you, which doesn't make sense with the other seasons is actually, it's quite remarkable, but you, you would, uh, I, I won't give the spoiler, but, uh, yeah, you should definitely see, okay. see it through. Yeah. Uh, because it, it ends up playing with this idea. Wow. So, so you wrote another book called The Triumph of Christianity. Yep. And I wonder if they're connected. Like, do you feel like hell and heaven were Christianity's sort of special sauce that enabled it to take over the world? I don't think it's the one thing. I think it contributed. And um, uh, I, it can be shown pretty easily, I think, that uh, Christian evangelism in, say, the second and third Christian centuries uh, much like uh, evangelism in the 19th and 20th centuries often involve fire and brimstone, uh, and um, that one of the conversion strategies was to convince people that the only way to uh, survive a horrible eternity was to believe in Christ. Uh, and um, it was a bit of a hard sell because a lot of pagans didn't believe in an afterlife at all. A lot of pagans just believed that that was the end of the sto- death was the end of the story. But Christians managed to convince people uh, both that there was an afterlife and that they had to believe in Jesus in order to have a good one. And so it was kind of an ancient mar- that kind of ancient marketing strategy where you create the need. And and then show that your product fulfills it, <laughs> and so they were they were they were very successful at doing that. So that was that it, it was a, it was a factor. It was it, it wasn't the thing, but it was it was, a, it was a big thing, I think. So so because because I mean that's the thing I know when I was in the evangelical movement, and you and you were too. I mean, the the thing that characterized it was unlike my Jewish friends, it really mattered to me to try to get everybody to be Christian. Like it felt very important. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that, ha- part of that had to do with wanting them not to go to hell, but part of it also had to do with like, it made me right. Oh, um, that's, yeah, absolutely. No, that's right. Uh, it is, uh, you know, because, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, psychologists have a whole kind of technology for understanding uh, all of that, but, um, you know, cognitive dissonance is a real thing. I mean, when people people have their realities disconfirmed, you know, for example, the belief that Jesus is coming back 
you know, next year sometime, and it doesn't happen. The way that you resolve that is by convincing more people that you're that you're right, because if more people agree with you, then you think you are right, even though you think actually I might be wrong. And so, getting people to agree with you is a really big thing when it comes to Christian evangelism. I think. But you see, here's the funny thing: is I I, I thought I was saved from all that when I left the faith. Uh huh. And then I and then I started hanging around with atheists. And they are the only people I have ever met who are as evangelical oh, yeah. as the Christians I used to hang around with. Oh, my you God. Know, no, I mean, have you no, been around no. these people? Oh, my God. No. Yeah. And, they, you know, and I get attacked by them, too. I mean, I get attacked by the fundamentalists. But, the, but Me atheists, too. these atheists, Me too. man, they, they are uh, they, not all of them, of course. But, oh, my God, they're such militant atheists. And, for example, you know, the movement, the atheist movement that argues that Jesus never actually even existed, the, the mythicists. Oh my God! They are—they are more vitriolic than than almost any fundamentalist I've ever known. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, <laughs> yes, I get it. Yeah. So, so then I, I come across like, I mean, it's funny because besides our names, this is one thing that we really have in common is is that we're nice to Christians, <laughs> and that we're respect that and and that we're respectful of their lifestyle and, 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 you know, not all of them. I mean, there are bad Christians, Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but like the idea, you know, I, I grew up around some of the most lovely Christians you could possibly imagine. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like your attitude is if it isn't hurting them, leave them alone. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And, and, it, you know, the thing is that there really are uh, Christians and Christian organizations that are doing so much good in the world. And, you know, during the current crisis, you know, there are churches that are banding together and uh, raising funds and taking care of the, of the hungry and the needy. And, and, uh, you know, Atheists don't have those kinds of organizations. In other words, there's no, you know, I, I, there's no atheist church around here that I can go to, um, you know, or at least not one on every corner. They don't have as many of them, Bart. You know, like I'm here, come to Cincinnati and you can come to Caravan, which is the little humanist fellowship I'm a part of. It's like a little church yeah. of people that get together on Sunday mornings to, to, to try to help each other become better lovers of, of other people. That, that needs to grow. Yeah. Because there's, it's very few and far between. There are a couple of humanist organizations around here, but they're tiny. And you know, and, and I'm in the South. There is a church. There is a church in every corner. I mean, uh, and so my my point is, apart apart from that, is that if Christians are doing that kind of thing, well, why should I try and you know disband them? <laughs> and you know, uh, so I I think Christianity can do a world of good. It can also do a world of harm. Because um, there are Christian churches that are uh, racist and that oppress women and that, uh, that support social policies that are dangerous and uh, politics that are harmful. And so that's not good either. Uh, and that terrify little kids with the visions of hell. Well, exactly right. I, I, you know, the thing is, it's not that I think that everything I think is right and that what Christians think is entirely wrong. It is, it, I don't think it works that way. I think all of us are wrong in a lot of ways. Uh, but that it's better to be thoughtful about what you think and believe than to be ignorant about it. And so being thoughtful about Christianity means knowing 
knowing things, knowing about the things about the Bible and about the history of theology and the history of the church, things that most Christians know nothing about. But if you know those things, then you then you at least have an intelligent faith rather than an ignorant faith. And people have an intelligent faith tend not to be fundamentalists. <laughs> and it's the fundamentalists that are the problem, I think. I mean, I have no trouble with with uh, fairly liberal Christians who share uh, positive social values that are interested in helping helping people that, you know, I think they're wrong about their belief, but it, you know, so I'm wrong about some of my beliefs too. And so that, that's okay. So I, I am absolutely yeah, not I, to I, attack I, Christians. I forget which scientist said it, said all models are wrong. Some are useful. Um, I, 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 I'm very similar in that way and that I, I'm, I, I don't want to deconvert anybody before their time. You know, that when people, but sometimes I meet people who are oppressed by Christianity, you know, who are being hurt by it. And, and, and there are people that I want to liberate. There are people that I want to get out of that um, and to draw out of that. Do, do I mean, do you find, do, don't you find that there are some people that you think, I, I do want to nudge that person towards a, a better way? <laughs> My, so, you know, I, I'm in a very different situation, uh, from yours. Um, my, in my situation, I rarely find that, uh, nudging people works very well. Uh, what I find works better in my situation is to get them to think about it and to, um, so rather than trying to, you know, move them in a particular direction, I try to get them to think about their own situation and to open them up to the possibility that there might be other ways. Um, and that involves pointing out problems with their with, with their perspectives, um, and um, help, you know letting them letting them work it out. For in my in, in my situation, the the bigger problem is people who want to leave the faith, who for social mainly for family and social reasons find it impossible to do so. Uh, and so uh, I've, I confront far more of that kind of person than people who are um, than the kind of people you're you're dealing with probably. What, what do you do with them? Well, I just got an email uh, yesterday from a fellow who was a uh, a missionary for most of his life overseas in a very poor country, who uh, I first met online when he was a very committed Christian, very, 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 very uh, conservative Christian, and now he's he's giving it up. But what does he do? What's he, what's he do for a livelihood? Um, how does he how does he put food on the table? How does he relate to his family? His wife is still like that, and his, his kids, and his, all of his friends. And so what does he do? Um, there are projects like this for people who are, um, uh, you know, who are actually in ministry of some kind. So there's this group, I don't know if you know this group called the Clergy Project. Very well. Yeah, very well. I'm part of it. I mean, I, I and I, yeah. I have, I, I've interviewed, I've had their folks come on the show and talk about yeah. it. Yeah, it's, it's a yes. wonderful thing. So it's a great, it's a great group. And there needs to be more of this kind of thing for lay people. Um, because, uh, you know, there are a lot of people like this. And uh, so th th those are the kind of people that I, that I have more to deal with. Uh, because people who well, that's um, who I, that's who I are, deal with all day. That's that's my whole world is those people. Yeah, yeah. The deconverts and especially the ones that that are struggling because what they, you know, and I didn't ask you this, but you know, I'll sometimes say to them like, "What do you miss?" Yeah, and they say, oh, "You know, they never miss the theology. They never they they never miss being down on gay people. They, they're like, I miss 
miss the, I miss the covered suppers. I miss the music. I miss going on missions trips. I miss raising my kids with people who share my values. You know, they're missing the fel- they're missing the community. Yep, that's it. I mean, all, mo- almost every one of us who can who deconverted that's that was that's exactly what we said uh you know i miss i miss the fellowship miss yeah. you know sharing things with people but that's why you know I, I don't i think humanists need to do a better job of um of developing an alternative well i mean it honestly, sounds like you're doing something <laughs> i mean that, that yeah so that, that's my whole world is about right now is trying to trying yeah. to figure out but you know what's interesting is is that sometimes i wish i had a good hammer to get people to be involved in, in this kind of fellowship, you know, other than like, it'll make your life better and you'll make the world a better place. Like, you know, like every now and then I go like, yeah, if, if I just could wave hell over their heads, that would be so helpful. I, that, that would be a real, you know, I, I yeah. need something like that. Yeah, it helps. Um, it helps. Yeah. Not really. <laughs> let me, let me ask you this. Um, you know, we, when we talk about th- this kindliness, one of the things that I find is, is that, a lot of the people that de- deconvert or a lot of their family and friends are convinced that once they stop believing in God, they will lose all moral um, moorings and, and they will become yeah. horrible people. And, and people are literally not just worried that that'll happen to somebody else. They're worried that that'll happen to them. And, yes. uh, and, and so, it's, you know, part of my mission in life is to let people know that, you know, the same values that drew me to Christianity are the ones that, you know, ultimately caused me to leave it. Um, and yes. that, that, that those are part of who I am. I, I, I went on your blog um, a couple of days ago and I started reading your blog. And I mean, it's a blog for people that are interested in religious, uh, popular religious study. But as I'm reading it, I was like, oh my gosh, this, all these wonderfully lovely people were there. You know, I was reading the comments and then I'm watching you interact with these people and I'm realizing you answer everybody. (laughs) And I thought to myself, I got to send my fearful Christian friends to this blog just so that they can see that humanism doesn't turn you into a mean person, but on the kind, I mean, I feel like you have a ministry on that blog of kindness. <laughs> yeah. So there are, how did that know, get started? There, how did that, how did you, how did you get doing the blog? Okay. So it's called the Bart Ehrman blog. So it's easy to, to get to, but it's, uh, I started it, uh, in 2012 and I started it, uh, as a way of raising money for charity. Um, and so people, uh, people pay a small membership fee and, uh, uh, the blog doesn't cost anything. I pay for the blog myself or I get, you know, I, I fund it some other way, but all the membership fees go, um, go to charities. And so that supports charities dealing with hunger and homelessness mainly. And, um, so, uh, it started out that I would just, uh, you know, I, I would write about, uh, things I know about. And so it's, it's for lay people, really. It's, it's, it's trying to share what we can know about the New Testament and early Christianity, what scholars know about it. Uh, but at a per, at a level that non scholars can resonate with, so it's 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 taking the scholarship and putting it down at the lower level, kind of like you know uh, like one of my books about religion, which is a, for a, a popular audience. Yeah. And so I you know I post I post about five I post five times a week for this thing uh, every day. There's five days a week. There's a post, and people on it. Some are uh, there are a lot of people who have deconverted. 
there are a lot of people who are thinking about deconverting. There are a lot of people who are committed. There are people who are committed Christians, and they just they want to know uh, about this information uh, because they don't think it's a bad thing to be informed. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I agree with them. And then they can make comments. And yeah, you're right. I mean, I get, you know, I get 50 or 60 comments a day sometimes. And I've got to, you know, I post all the comments unless they're really snarky or, you know, irrelevant. And um, if people ask me questions, I answer the questions. And I just think, you know, people who, there are people at every different level on this thing. And so I just try to be, I try to be polite. And the rule of the blog is you can't be, you can't be snide to people and you've got to respect them. And if you're not, then I'm not going to post your comment. <laughs> Well, does it, does it, and does it work? Do you raise money? Um, this last year we raised 190,000. Um, and, uh, and it is going to take off now. We're going to raise a lot more than that, uh, very soon. So we've raised all together since the blog began, we've raised about $900,000 and every penny of that's gone directly to, uh, charities, uh, dealing with, uh, hunger and homelessness, both a couple of local ones and a couple of international ones. Oh man, I mean that—that's that, like that does my heart good it's for, on on so many different levels. That's just that's just. But like I said, like even if if there was no money involved, I mean that money story is beautiful. But like if there were no money involved, just the space that you've created with your books and then this blog, and the way in which you engage with people in this in this kind same way you've sort of engaged with me in this in this conversation is just. N not necessarily, you know, sort of breaking things down for them and for me, but not making them feel stupid for not knowing. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, the first time I wrote a non-scholarly book, um, I'd written three scholarly books early in my career. And then I was going to write, uh, I got at Oxford University Press wanted me to write a textbook for college students. And uh, I was talking with a colleague of mine, and it's exactly what he said. He says, you know, you've got to treat them like adults. Uh, and says, you got to figure out how do you take scholarship and make it so that it's so that they can understand it, but you're not condescending. And, uh, yeah, uh, I, so I try to do that. Uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's hard for, it, it's hard to do. Most scholars don't know how to communicate to a normal human being. <laughs> And so, uh, so that's that. And a lot of scholars who do try to communicate to normal human beings act like they're talking to, uh, you know, kindergartners. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a tricky balance. Now, your wife's a scholar too, isn't she? She is. She's a, uh, she's a Shakespeare scholar. Um, she is, uh, she's one of the more brilliant human beings to walk the planet. Um, and so we've been married for about uh, 20 years. What I usually tell people is that we, growing up, we had a lot in common, that, um, that she, out of uh, school, she, she, she grew up in London. She's a, she's a Brit. She said, uh, when she finished school, she went to, she went to Oxford University. And uh, I went to Moody Bible Institute. <laughs> so, so we had a lot in common. <laughs> so you met her after yeah. all the fireworks of your um, sort of, you know, migration out of evangelicalism was over. You, you, you didn't go through that with her. No, no, I didn't. Uh, it's a second, yeah. second marriage for both of us. My, my, uh, my first wife was a high school sweetheart who also went through a fundamentalist phase and has gotten out of it as well. But, um, uh, and Sarah and I, uh, met because we both, we taught in close proximity to each other. I'm at North Carolina and she, University of North Carolina, she's a Duke or just 12 miles apart and, uh, friends, friends introduced us. Wow. Wow. And, and you've got kids too, don't you? 
And grandkids? Yeah. Uh, kids and grandkids. We've got two uh, kids in their late 30s. Uh, and, uh, got three, uh, got three grandkids and two more on the way. <laughs> wow. So, are, are, uh, now, are any of them around there? Are any of them around you in North Carolina? Uh, my son is around. Uh, he lives in Raleigh, so they're just about 40 minutes away. My daughter, uh, lives in New Hampshire. And so, uh, right now it doesn't much matter because you can't see either one of them. <laughs> so it's all, all Zoom meetings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, d- d- is this like... When I think of two scholars being stuck at home, like is this affecting you less than the average bear? Yeah, uh, very much so. The uh, you know the main the main differences are uh, that we are you know completely sick at heart about what's happening in the world and uh, worried to death about the state of the economy and the unemployed and the sick and the dying and all that. The other thing is that we we both have elderly parents that we can't get to. Uh, But other than that, in terms of our personal lives, our personal lives aren't that much different. Uh, If you if you give a scholar uh, books and a computer, uh, they're good. (laughs) And so my my days are pretty much like my days. Uh, I I do my research, I do my writing and I do my blog. And I know it's just it's not that that much different. Wow. You know, whenever I talk to somebody um, this way, I'm painfully aware that I'm not Terry Gross. Do, do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like you think, I, I wish I knew how to talk to people better. Um, but, but I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you. And, and I guess what I'm wondering is, is it, did, did I leave anything out or is there anything you're like, man, you know, right now what's on my mind or this is, this is what I wish somebody would ask me or <laughs> this is what I want to say to the world. Like, is there anything you're like, this is, ah, damn it. Why didn't he ask this? Um, so, uh, I would say that you are like Terry Gross in a lot of ways. Uh, one thing is when she finishes her interview, she'll stop and say, was there anything I should have asked? (laughs) 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 And, and, uh, and she, so, uh, no, there's nothing, no. Uh, and in her case, there actually were a couple of things, but she, um, for, for this particular, for this particular topic, but she, um, uh, she she pointed out uh, something she'd never done before. I've been on Terry Gross several times, and and uh, this time she did something which I really appreciated. Which she, when she said, "Well, yeah." So, uh, in case you're wondering, she said to the audience, uh, "You know, there are a lot of things in this book that we haven't talked about. So, if you have questions, <laughs> you know, they might be answered in the book." <laughs> read the book. <laughs> kind of appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, read the book. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I think we've come, and you know, obviously, you bring such a different perspective to things, and you've got a very different clientele from. Uh, what what she has, and so I really appreciate it because this has been a lot of fun. Uh, uh, you know, it's not often that you can talk to somebody who has gone through a very similar experience and ended up in a very similar place and has the same identical name. <laughs> it's, it's true that, true that. Well, you know, like I, I know you, I, I was talking with um, a friend of mine the other day, and we were talking about affirmation. I sort of let almost slip out of my mouth. I'm like, yeah, you know, what? I just don't. Like, I don't need to be told all the time these things. I don't need to. And my wife almost punched me in the side of the head. She just said, of course, you don't need to be affirmed. You get affirmed all the time. (laughs) You know, she's like, you you never perceive yourself to be hungry because you are constantly being fed. And yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, one, one of Sarah's major missions in life is keeping me humble, and uh, she does a remarkably good job. <laughs> <laughs> but 
when you're in the role that you are, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how many people have sat across from me and told me about escaping from really toxic religious experiences who felt really boxed in. I mean, you know, homosexual stuff, the, you know, it's all the stuff that, that yeah. can happen. And I've said, you know, so tell me the story. How did it happen? And they were, this, this, this. and then they're like, and then I, I came across this book by Bart Ehrman. Okay. And <laughs> it, it comes up, no, it comes up over and over again. Like, you know, huh. it's, it's, yeah. it's, you've been a big part of a lot of people's coming away from difficult stuff. But the other thing is, is that I feel like you've also given them a framework to say, Christianity is still the shaping narrative of our culture. It's still worth knowing about. It's, it's, it, there, there's some beautiful language here. It may not, it may not be factually true, but it's still a framework that helps people make sense of the world, or at least some people make some sense of the world. And I, I just, I just feel like I, I know you get a lot. I, I'm, I'm assuming you get lots of, of wonderful letters and things, people telling you how much you appreciate your work. But I, I, the kind of people that I talk to, I, I bet they're not writing you letters, but you're having a huge impact out there. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate that. I, uh, you know, I do hear from people. Uh, uh, I do hear from people. Um, I also hear from uh, uh, conservative Christians who think that I'm the spawn of the devil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I'm because because pre pre precisely for the same uh, the same reason. But my my view is um, that you know people need to be. I think if people are informed, they can make uh, obviously can make better decisions, and faith decisions are very important. And leaving the faith, as you and I have done, doesn't mean uh, leaving the uh, fantastic values that we acquired through our religious experiences. Uh, and you know that I I continue to see the ultimate Christian message being one that you should. Uh, love one another and give of yourself to one another. And I, I don't think you have to be a Christian to do that. I think a lot of Christians don't do it. Uh, a lot of Christians do, and I support them. And a lot of non-Christians do it. I support them too. And I think we should do everything we can to, to promote that uh, so that you can keep what's good about the faith uh, while you give up some of the things that you don't think you really believe in anymore. Yeah. And you know, most people don't choose what they believe in the yeah. first. I, I, some people are like, you know, I bet you know when you saw those inconsistencies in scripture, that's when you stopped believing in God and said, like, oh no, believe me, <laughs> you know that wasn't it. Doesn't um, doesn't work that way. Yes. No. So so I just appreciate I just appreciate not just not just your message, but the tone in which you're delivering it. It's, it's really it's really beautiful. Well, thank you, thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for talking, and, and and thanks for talking with me. I, I I think you're going to encourage a lot of people um, who it, it'll be good for them to hear you in this venue. I really appreciate your time. All right, that was me and Bart Ehrman. I hope you liked it. Isn't he wonderful? We're lucky. We're a lucky bunch here at Humanize Me that. We have enough people and enough supporters that we can attract people like Bart to, to the conversation. And I, I feel really fortunate and I'm grateful to 
all of us for working together to make the show kind of substantial enough that people want to talk to us. So cool for us. All right, listen, I, t- I promised you an Ingersoll quote and I-, I promised it would be appropriate and here you go. Robert Ingersoll said, wrote, is it necessary that heaven should borrow its light from the glare of hell? Infinite punishment is infinite cruelty, endless injustice, immortal meanness. To worship an eternal gowler hardens, debases, and pollutes even the vilest soul. While there is one sad and breaking heart in the universe, no good being can be perfectly happy. Against the heartlessness of the Christian religion, every grand and tender soul should enter solemn protest. The God of hell should be held in loathing, contempt, and scorn. A God who threatens eternal pain should be hated, not loved, cursed, not worshipped. A heaven presided over by such a God would be below the lowest hell. I want no part in any heaven in which the saved, the ransomed, and the redeemed will drown with shouts of joy the cries and sobs of hell, in which happiness will forget misery, where tears of the lost only increase laughter and double bliss. The idea of hell was born of ignorance, brutality, fear, cowardice, and revenge. The idea testifies that our remote ancestors were the lowest beasts. Only from dens, lairs, and caves, only from the mouths filled with cruel fangs, only from hearts of fear and hatred, only from the conscience of hunger and lust, only from the lowest and most debased could come this cruel, heartless, and and bestial of all dogmas. I would not for my life destroy one star of human hope, but I want it so that when a poor woman rocks the cradle and sings a lullaby to the dimpled darling, She will not be compelled to believe that 99 chances in 100 she is raising kindling wood for hell. I would not for anything blot out the faintest star that shines on the horizon of human despair, nor in the sky of human hope, but I will do what I can to get that infinite shadow out of the heart of man. All right, maybe he's a little bit harder on it than Bart Ehrman, but... uh, but I think that their, their hearts are in the right place. Their hearts are in the same place. And that is, you know, if somebody believes in heaven, let them slide. If they believe in hell, come on now. It's time for us to speak a little sense. All right. This was a good one. I'm glad you're part of it. I'll see you next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at humanize me pod on Twitter and humanize me podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search humanize me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424 424- 291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life.
Oh, 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 oh,